Welcome back to In Search of Tarot, a podcast that examines, questions, and reimagines our approach to life and the cards. Through guest interviews and in-depth discussions, we'll explore and expand the beautiful complexities of spirituality, philosophy, magic, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Angie. And we're your hosts for this fascinating ride. Thanks for being here with us. Our guest today is Finn Schubert. Finn, who uses he, him pronouns, is the author of Even the Cemeteries Have Space Here, an essay collection exploring his move from NYC to a small town to grieve his infertility. In a weird twist, he got pregnant as soon as the book came out. He is a Moth Story Slam winning storyteller, and his writing has appeared in The Body, Lit Star Review, and the anthologies Transcending, Trans Buddhist Voices, and Places Like Home. He writes a weekly essay newsletter titled The Menstruant, exploring the question, what does it mean to be a gay man who loves having a uterus, right now, pregnancy edition. Finn's background is in public health, and he most recently worked as the director of HIV services for a large community health center network in Brooklyn prior to transitioning to freelance consulting last year. He offers speaking and workshops regarding LGBTQ plus health, trans, and non-binary inclusion in workplaces and spiritual communities, and public health program design and evaluation. Finn currently lives in NYC and is at work on an essay collection. Before we launch into this wonderful exploration of the shapes of the stories that we tell, I want to extend an invitation for you to join me this December for Winter Solstice Tarot Study, December 1st through the 29th. Over the course of five Thursdays in December, we will spend the darkening days of the year in deep contemplation with the tarot. Each week, we'll gather on Zoom to explore different themes, anchored by supplemental reading, which will be delivered to you in the form of free PDFs, and communal conversation. You will have access to a private Slack group where discussions can continue outside of weekly sessions. All Zoom meetings will be recorded if you are not able to join live. I've had a few people reach out to me asking if this offering is appropriate for people who are just beginning their tarot study, and the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, in a lot of ways, I think that the earlier you are in the journey, the more you may benefit from this offering, because this offering is really going to be centered on identifying, honing, and refining the lens through which you read tarot. What is the unique approach that you bring to the cards? Not even so much about what the cards individually mean or memorizing the interpretations, but stepping back even further to ask questions about how do I view life and what do those views mean about the way that I approach the cards. So if this offering sounds appealing to you, I hope that you will join me. BIPOC and members of the LGBTQIA community are welcome to use code TRANSCEND for 15% off. And our Patreon members who support this show and make it possible for us to pay all of our incredible guests, like Finn, receive 10% off. If you'd like to find out more about Winter Solstice Tarot Study and sign up to join us, I'll drop the link in the show notes. Now on to today's conversation. Enjoy. Finn, welcome to In Search of Tarot. Thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having me. I love your writing. I've been following your your writing and your work for a while now, and um, just really excited to get to know you a little bit better. 
today. So um, help locate us, um, if you could, to start within your story by sharing a little bit about where you are and who you are today in this present moment. Sure. So geographically, I am calling in today from Lenape land, which is here in New York City. Uh, New York City is also where I was born, so I'm happy to be back here. Um, and in terms of where I'm at, I'm in a very liminal place. Uh, I am pregnant. I identify as a transgender man. And I also consider myself both a scientist and public health professional, as well as a writer, as well as a spiritual worker. And so sometimes those are all identities that I inhabit in various ways. Amazing. It's interesting to think about the fact that in the past, um, science and mysticism have been clo more closely related and at times further related, you know, but it's it's changed over the years. So that's kind of interesting to mm -hmm. reflect on. Um, it makes me wonder actually how you how you sit in that liminal place between those two things. You know, how do you, uh, some people struggle with the separation of science and spirituality, but how do you sit in that? For me, I think that there are different ways of knowing and they all have pluses and minuses. And I think that culturally, sometimes we're given the idea that um, a quantitative way of knowing is better than knowing through your intuition or it's better to see something for yourself than to have a trusted person tell you. And in fact, these are all legitimate ways of knowing and they all have their place because they all have pluses and minuses. And so that's kind of how I see it. I think for me, I was always interested in where does knowledge come from? So when I wanted to explore sort of spiritual knowledge, I at first set out sort of in a meditation tradition, which I've since moved away from. And then I also, in my professional work, became interested in where does scientific knowledge come from? Where does authority come from and why? And so I was able to get trained so that I could understand that better. And then finally, in my writing, I've been really interested in this question of what metaphors we use and what shapes we give our own stories. Because a story is a way of knowing, it's a way of making meaning out of an experience and giving it something that other people can understand, but we have to give it a shape to do that. And so how do we choose language or metaphors for our experience that serve us as opposed to ones that we're handed? Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like the power of stories is something that I'm really learning right now. Um, and it's interesting for me to reflect on the fact that when I first learned tarot, uh, my very first class in 2010, one of the first things that my teacher said was tarot is storytelling, you know, mm -hmm. which it definitely is. Um, but it did not mean nearly what it means to me now, you know, the idea of telling a story. Um, and I, yeah, it's interesting for me to just kind of sit with that and kind of remember that and reflect on the way that that's changed for me. Um, so you mentioned this, this kind of, you know, searching for what it means to know something in different ways of knowing, which is something that I, I really wanted to talk to you about tonight, because when we spoke in preparation for this interview, you mentioned that that was a, that was something that was on your mind. And that really stuck with me um, after I talked to you. 
um, you know, this idea of what does it mean to know something and how do we know and how do we know when we know something. Um, so how would you describe what it is to know something? Well, that's a tough question. And I don't know if I feel comfortable answering it, but I think a related question is how do we sit in our own authority? How do we feel that we know something? Or if we don't know something, how do we feel confident that we can figure out the right question to ask, essentially? How do we put the right container around what we don't know so that we have a clearer understanding of what we might do to address that if it is something we want to address. Um, obviously, we don't always have to find out things we don't know, but sometimes it can feel very frightening, like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I want. And sometimes by learning to ask the right questions, that can start to feel less threatening and more curious. Um, but yeah, I would rephrase that as how can we sit in our own authority in both what we feel we know and what we feel we don't know. Yeah. Do you feel that there are ways of knowing that are located in the mind that are different than ways of knowing of the body? Or how do you like how do you sit with that with that uh, way of knowing, like bodily ways of knowing? Oh, I think they're very important and they're really devalued in our culture. And part of that is because it's a more difficult way of knowing to transmit or to share with someone else. So if I know a fact, I can just verbally tell you the fact and then you kind of have that and you can decide if you agree with it. But if I, if I tell you I'm feeling something in my body or if I feel something and I have a certain interpretation, I can't necessarily convey that to you in the same way. And I might be okay with that. I might be comfortable with my own knowing and what it means to me, or I might not be. And I think this is something that is kind of a muscle to trust ourselves about our knowing in our body. So I have an essay that I wrote recently called, What Does It Mean to Be Believed? And that essay was actually about how since I became pregnant as a trans man, people don't believe me that my passport says male. So I literally had a flight booked in the wrong gender, even though I said my passport says male, you have to book it this way. They knew I was pregnant and I guess they thought I was mistaken and they booked it as female. I've had this happen other times as well. And so it was very interesting to me to notice that I wasn't being believed about something very obvious. Mm -hmm. And it caused me to look at when do I need to be believed? Why do I need to be believed? And by whom do I need to be believed? And I thought about how, you know, early in my transition, I needed to be believed by people close to me because I was still cultivating that confidence in myself. And in the same way, early in my journey to kind of cultivate my relationship with my intuition, it was very important to me to have friends who believed me when I said that I knew certain things intuitively because I didn't, I wasn't sure if I believed myself all the way. But now I feel more confident in my ability to know things that way. And so it becomes less important whether or not other people believe me. And so that relationship with being believed and being in our authority is really interesting and something to look at. 
that kind of reminds me of what you and I spoke about the other night about, um, I was sharing with you that in preparation for my wedding, I had a lot of strange, unexpected feelings around um, the freedom that came from, you know, being a queer person entering into like a heterosexual, you know, kind of situated ritual. Um, but also the need to be validated, you know, that it, that it did feel, it did feel very freeing that the rule, that there weren't as many rules in place for me, but also I sort of wanted the rules or I wanted the tradition that came from the rules and with the rules, you know, and I know that that's kind of something that you've also uh, written about. Will you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's something I've thought about a lot as a queer person in various ways. Right now, that comes up for me a lot in terms of my pregnancy. On one hand, because nobody in public notices that I'm pregnant or because my pregnancy is so out of people's expectation that I'm not experiencing a lot of the common issues that pregnant people experience. You know, I hear from cis women that people are often giving them unsolicited advice and telling them what to do and you know, unwanted touching their belly. And that doesn't happen to me. But at the same time, nobody really believes me that I'm pregnant. And so I can't apparently book flights, like nobody gives me their seat on the subway, like that kind of thing. And so on one hand, it's very nice to be culturally invisible in this way. On the other hand, you know, sometimes it would be nice to be recognized for my experience. So that's one thing that feels very active for me right now. Um, but I've also felt challenges looking backwards or looking for myself within traditions or within deities um, and finding myself archetypally represented or not. And like, yes, that can come with flexibility to reinvent oneself, but at the same time, it can feel very exhausting. It can feel kind of a lack of grounding. I'm wondering how some of that resonates for you. I I mean, I am with you 100% on that. That's definitely something that has frustrated me. And, and it's frustrated me to try to, you know, to be told that I can write myself into the narrative, um, which is, of course, true, but um, sort of sidesteps the the pain, honestly, of of not already being there, you know, and and not being widely represented, you know, already. I feel like right now, it, it personally, I'm like on the cusp of beginning to understand the ways in which I can build and create my own mythology, which yeah. I really I really feel like I'm just getting there. I'm just starting to get there. Um, you know, is that something that you have known? Is that something that you've been doing? Or where are you with that? Well, I want to comment on something you said, which is that being told that we can write ourselves into the story you said it sidesteps the pain of not already being there. And I think that's really important. I think that culturally, we don't make enough room for grief. And so when something like that is said, like, oh, you can just write yourself into the story, that's not giving us any room to grieve that this is painful for us. And that's kind of work that we need to do to get grounded before we can decide how or if we want to write ourselves in. So that feels really important to me. Mm. Um, for me, I've tried to approach this in various ways. I think that there are a lot of ancestors that 
or deities that we can find our way into if we choose to, even if they don't look exactly like us or they don't have exactly the same identity in the past that we do today, they can still be available for that kind of thing. Um, and I, because I think that I also had written myself out of the story, I think that I was complicit in that, you know, that I had internalized these ideas like, oh, I, I, I'm not going to find someone like me going back in time, like I'm not even going to look or like my familial ancestors wouldn't understand me because I'm trans. Like these were things that I brought that were messages that I internalized that I've ultimately kind of had to step away from because they didn't serve me. Mm. That's a good point. I, I appreciate that point of not letting yourself be complicit in erasing yourself. Um, that's that's important, I think. Um, so you spoke earlier about um, this idea of journey, um, which I want to kind of bring in now. So you have this amazing substack uh, called The Menstruant, and it's subtitled, What Does It Mean to Be a Gay Man Who Loves Having a Uterus? And now you've added Pregnancy Edition. Um, and I was going to say, to describe this substack, that you share your journey through life via essays. But um, one of your essays is actually an examination of the way that we love to use this metaphor of journey to talk about the act of living our lives. And you ask, quote, where does the metaphor of life being a journey serve us and when does it break down, end quote. So talk a little bit about that. So I think that as a trans person, I've heard the word journey a lot. You know, like, oh, your gender journey, your transition journey, tell me about your journey. And then as someone who experienced infertility prior to my current pregnancy, like there's the whole other thing, like a fertility journey, which I think in particular is a really problematic euphemism. Um, but I just became interested in why are we so interested in talking about this as a journey? And what does it mean to do that? And at the time I was thinking of a journey as kind of the classic hero's journey, like you go in search of something and you come back and either you found it or you didn't. And if you didn't, then your journey was a failure. And after I wrote that piece, some people let me know that they see a journey in other ways, um, a little more open-ended or unfolding. But I just really had to wonder what it meant to always see myself as in pursuit of a goal and how I might reframe having my goal or desire change without that looking like a failure. And so I wondered if I had to abandon that idea of journey. And I think in that essay, I particularly looked at, like I had experienced infertility. I gave up on having a child. I was like, I'm gonna write a book. That's what I'm gonna do. And then I got pregnant. So like what happened to the book? Does that become like this failed journey? Was I confused? And so I'm I'm looking for other metaphors to contain my experience that feel more true for me. Do you have any that that have come to you since you wrote that essay, other metaphors? Well, you know, I know that we both also uh, follow Sophie Stern's work. She also has a wonderful substack. And I've always really loved her essay, Living Between Stories. And she writes about hermit crabs and how they change shells. And they wait for another hermit crab, and they can even form chains of 
uh, crabs that all are kind of switching into the shell that's the right size. And that felt very resonant for me. Like we can give ourselves sort of a metaphorical container, but then when it's not the right size for us, we're going to switch it up. Yeah. She also, she, she spoke about that actually when she was on the podcast recently. And she also explained that I guess they line up and they kind of wait and help each other kind of find the, the right shell and like try, try them on, which is not only a very cute image, but also, um, you know, just, she was saying we need to help each other in that way. You know, that, yeah. that those of us that struggle to find our story or, you know, that have gone through a death of a story, we need to help each other find new stories and, and tell new stories. I really liked that, you know, metaphor. Yeah. And I also was thinking in this, you know, talking about journey that I was wondering, you know, in what ways it might actually hinder us to sort of quote unquote know where we're going, you know, this idea again of, of what it is to know. I mean, in what ways might that, you know, stand in our way actually to know where we're going? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's helpful to know what we desire for ourselves. And so for me, because I spent a long time in a Buddhist community, I wasn't very comfortable articulating my desire. And that's something that I've written about a little bit is that when I desired to get pregnant and I wasn't able to, and that went on, you know, when you're trying to get pregnant, it's just like every month you get your hopes up and it doesn't work and it can go on for years, you know? And so that was kind of a time where I had to admit, like, I really desire something that I don't know if it's going to happen for me. And it was really the first time that I articulated, like, I would like to be pregnant and have a baby. And that was unusual for me at the time, because I was so like, oh, I'm open to the journey. Like, I'm open to what happens. I just want the like best outcome. And so it felt really uncomfortable for me to say that. And there's a poem in my Substack about it. But that was really kind of perhaps one of the reasons or one of the points at which I started to think about leaving that community. And now I have a practice that's really rooted in understanding my heart's desire and praying for it and taking action in line with it. Because it's not that I know how it's going to turn out, but I trust that if I know what I truly desire for myself, it's going to lead me in a good direction. I actually saw a post today on Instagram that said, I wish someone had told me that I would, would find God when I found my desire. Mm. Um, and I, it makes me wonder, you know, how do you link the ability to access your desire to a sense of, of connection to spirituality? Yeah. And I mean, I think this has a lot of resonance, especially for queer folks, because for many of us, our desire is a way into self-knowing. It's a way that we learn about ourselves, that we can embrace ourselves more fully. It can be a challenge that we move through. Um, but for me, my desires are a, a breadcrumb of the work that I'm really meant to be doing. And they get stronger if I don't follow them. Something else I was thinking about with this idea of um, journeys and dreams um, 
and and actually before I even say that I want to I want to quote another another passage of you so you write I suppose there are ways in which we speak of being in pursuit of something else and then life happened although we don't usually speak of such things as a positive and this made me think about um something that a mentor of mine shared with me once that every dream that we hold in our life isn't necessarily meant to be you know quote unquote achieved that maybe sometimes dreams just kind of get us going in a direction and then as we are moving towards that another dream kind of will come in and we'll follow that one and you know and maybe some of them will be achieved or met whatever that even means but um sometimes they just kind of get us you know going in a direction but what is what does all that bring up for you oh yeah i love that that feels very true to me in my own life um you know i got a job i thought it was my dream job I did it for a few years. I was like, this is not actually what I want to be doing. And I went a different direction, but it's, it's important to move towards things. And I think we need to tell stories where our dreams might be a little bit more like that, you know, more like wavelets rather than like, I'm going to climb this one mountain and that's my whole life. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. So you've mentioned it a little bit now, but a consistent theme in your writing is how badly, how very badly you wanted to get pregnant and the links to which, you know, you were willing to go to make that happen. So talk about that mm -hmm. desire and, and how we're, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious, like if that was surprising to you that you felt that way or just, you know, just talk about that desire. I think in so many ways, a lot of the things I wanted for myself before that had some sort of sense of linearity. So, oh, like, I'm not good at this thing. Let me practice at it and I'll get better. Or, you know, I'd like to have this kind of job. So let me pursue this kind of preparation for it. And um, this was instead kind of this sense of bargaining with the universe of feeling like I didn't even know what I was supposed to be doing to make it work you know, because there's so much conflicting advice, you know, like eat this, eat that, but also like, oh, it will work when you stop trying, which of course is not always available to queer people um, or other folks. And that can be especially painful. Uh, so like this constant sense of like, on one hand, oh, like there's so much more I could be doing, but on the other hand, like nobody really knows what's going to work anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of that really changed how I thought about desire and it helped me to get out of what I now see as kind of a capitalist and linear mindset in terms of like oh like you want this thing well work hard and like maybe you'll get there uh which of course like had you asked me at the time I would have said like no I don't believe in that like that you know that ignores like issues of privilege like blah 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 but I think on some level I had internalized it like oh if I work hard enough then I'll be worthy or valuable or get to my goal and this really shifted all of that and led me to ask myself, what's my life really about? How do I really see this story? And I think that's what informed some of my writing about moving away from linear narratives and finding other patterns to understand our experiences. And when you finally became pregnant, as you shared, it took you, you know, by surprise. And you shared with me that this is a topic that you've given a lot of thought to in the past. And I'm wondering if you'll speak a little bit about the work that you told me you've done or that you did around intentional versus unexpected or what you said at the time you called ambivalent pregnancy. Will you kind of speak about that? 
Yeah, so it's kind of funny. Um, 10 years ago, when I was a graduate student in public health, I was interested in the topic of what I then called, I would not necessarily call it this now, ambivalent intention pregnancy. And part of the reason I got this public health degree at all, people don't really believe me anymore because I did not take a math class from when I was 16 years old to when I started this graduate program, which required four semesters of biostatistics. And I was actually terrified, but I knew that I wanted this training. And I wanted to know why we put things in the categories that we do and kind of add my own perspective to those categories. So at the time, there was a lot of looking at like unintended pregnancy and intended pregnancy and the difference in those outcomes. But we all know that life is messier than that. And so I said, what about when someone doesn't go out trying to get pregnant, but they're happy when they find out that they're pregnant? Is that a separate group of people than people who just have pregnancy that they kind of like really didn't want? And so that was the focus of my research. And at the time, I was in a relationship where unintended pregnancy was not possible. And I didn't think it would ever like happen to me. And the what I found was that people had very healthy pregnancy outcomes in my in this group. And also that most people were in this group because they thought they weren't fertile. They weren't trying to get pregnant because they thought they weren't fertile, but then they were happy. And I was like, oh, that's that's weird. But then like, that's what happened to me. Like, I thought it was infertile. And then I got pregnant. And so now I'm like constantly in conversation with my younger researcher self and being like, no, well, I thought I was infertile. But I think a lot of it goes back to what we already talked about in terms of, oh, like you should set out and you should know like what you were intending to do. And then you know, there shouldn't be any surprises. Like, how do we feel about surprises? And why do we feel that way? Whenever I hear the word surprise, I remember this weird commercial where this guy's like trimming his hedge and then like a squirrel jumps out at him. And he's like, I hate surprises. And then the commercial is like, you'll have no surprises with our insurance or whatever. And that was how I felt for a long time. Like, I hate surprises. But so many surprises in my life have been, you know, better than what I could have expected or so different than what I expected that I want to have a different framework that allows for that, where that's part of the story and not like an aberration of the story. Yeah, it's it kind of troubles knowing, again, to like bring it back to that, you know, the, a surprise kind of troubles that. Um, and also that made me think about, um, to bring it into the tarot sphere, it made me think about shuffling and randomization and how that makes room for surprise. Um, sometimes I question how much we can really be surprised when we read for ourselves, because obviously we're just in our own head, you know. Um, although the the person that will have been the guest on the show the week previous to you has really helped me with that some too in ways of looking at image that are a little bit more expansive and a little less based in um, definition and, and meaning making, you know? Um, but also to bring it into tarot, the, the journey part that we were talking about earlier, 
that also is something that I thought about, you know, and I've, I've thought about this before reading your work as well, that, you know, the linearness of the fool's journey um, and the way that sometimes tarot gets looked at from card zero to card 21 as this kind of linear progression and you you're sort of leveling up or you're you know going up in forms of consciousness you know um and i know that you work with tarot so you know talk a little bit about your tarot practice and how you've um dealt with that or if you encountered that journey idea in tarot and how you sort of deconstructed it for yourself or just just talk about your practice a little bit yeah I mean I think like many people when it came to tarot I was interested in you know getting the right answer or knowing things and so I had to unlearn a lot of those impulses right and to feel comfortable that I could interpret without having a guidebook or that what came to me was correct and what helped me was getting a new deck after a while so that I could kind of start fresh I don't read for myself if I know it's a question that I'm not willing to be surprised about mm -hmm. so there are certain things that I will read for myself about because I know that I'm kind of open about it and there are certain things I know like I'm stressed about this I can't receive literally any information about it I can only receive certain things and therefore I'm not gonna you know I'm gonna have someone else read for me if I want to know and so that's kind of interesting um yeah the fact that the cards are numbered really creates this idea of progression you know some people of course suggest laying out the majors in another order you know like in a circle I also always wonder like does it does the fool have to be the protagonist you know like what mm. if what if there was another protagonist or or none at all I mean like what if it's just a world you know yeah I love that yeah yeah, yeah. um so bringing it back to your public health background I went in, in a tarot uh tangent um but I was curious you know with that background um in what ways that prepared you for this pregnancy, but then what has also still surprised you um, about this experience of being pregnant? I think it's very helpful for me to understand where medical knowledge comes from. Uh, and so when I read a study, I'm literally imagining like, was this written by resident slamming like monster energy drinks at the nurse's station at 3 a.m.? Or was this written by a team of people who had a million dollar grant? And, you know, where does this information come from and am I going to listen to it? So that's been very helpful because obviously as a pregnant person, if you Google anything, it's like, oh, you should not eat or drink that thing. And I'm like, okay, that's easy for you to say, but I have to live my life. And so not getting freaked out by that and just being like, I know where this knowledge came from. And so I'm going to decide what's right for me and my body uh, has been really helpful to me. I'm um, really empowering. Are there many, I'm, I'm sure I sadly know the answer to this already, but are there many trans sources in the medical field? Like have, have many trans people written about the experience of pregnancy or, you know, are, are there sources to go to? Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel very well supported by an online community of trans folks who are doing this. 
And I think that like trans issues and pregnancy uh, have been published about in the literature. I think a real challenge uh, with literature about trans people in general in scientific literature is that because physicians and the medical community is so uncomfortable with uncertainty and already coming in with their own cultural bias, they read certain things into a lack of data. So now, you know, trans men and trans masculine people are simultaneously being told you should freeze your eggs because you might, it might decrease your fertility to go on testosterone, but also testosterone is not a form of birth control. You should use something else. And it's like the directionality there, it's kind of like both those things can't maybe be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. And also if you look at the available literature, which is not very good, it's not convincing about either of those things. And yet this kind of gets repeated. And so like, if I didn't work in this field and someone told me, oh, this might reduce your chances of getting pregnant in the future, I would think they had a study that showed like that might reduce my chances as opposed to like this might reduce your chances as in like you might also get hit by lightning. Like who knows, like anything might happen. You know, those are two different kinds of might. And mm -hmm. so it's really good to know the difference. I recently learned about a trans organization that uh, works as a death doula and then also beyond death ensures that the gender of the person is observed through their, you know, funeral and, and through all of that, because that's something that often, sadly, you know, does not occur. Yeah. Is there work like that that happens in the hospital? Well, I guess in hospitals in general, but around even around pregnancy, I was curious if there's any kind of work that that's done in that way. Um, a lot of us really have to kind of do that for ourselves if that's important to us like so to have those conversations before we go to a hospital or you know wherever we plan to give birth uh and to the best of our ability choose places that are going to work with us on that which is obviously the availability of such places is very geographically dependent Another question that you asked that I wanted to kind of allow you to expand on is in, in what ways is pregnancy a narrative about loss? That's something that you've written about. Will you kind of open that up a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I can't do things that I used to be able to do. And my body doesn't look the way it used to look. And I don't know if it will ever look that way again. And I was going to write a book this year, but now I'm a little bit busy dealing with other things related to my pregnancy. And I'm very happy to be pregnant, but it's not that those things are not upsetting to me. It's not that I don't have any feelings about those things. And it doesn't mean that I'm not excited or that I, you know, I'm not going to love my baby, but I think we have to kind of make room for grief and know that every yes is also a no to something else. And it's okay to grieve that no. Yeah, it's very five of cups comes to mind. Yeah. So in another of your essays titled Against the Linear Narrative of Pregnancy, you reference the book Meander Spiral Explode, which we both uh, love by Jane Allison, um, and which has been really influential on me as well. So I'm wondering what shape you might use now uh, to tell the story of your pregnancy, if a shape comes to mind, or, or if you even thought about that at all. At first, I was going to try and get out of this question uh, <laughs> because 
it's I was going to be like, oh, you can't see the shape of something while you're in the middle of it. But I actually what's coming to mind is wavelets. Mm. I really like the idea of wavelets because you know, they have kind of an up and a down motion, but also they're always hitting the shore wherever they hit. And right now I feel very, um, a lot of wavelet energy around how much capacity I have every day, which has been very hard for me in this sort of linear mentality of, you know, if you're not getting enough done today, you better optimize so you can get more done tomorrow. And then you optimize on that. And that's just not how my life is going right now. It's going in wavelets. Also, though, I do really appreciate the point that you made that when you're in the middle of the shape, you can't see it. And kind of made me think that like, even if we are on a journey of some kind, that we maybe can't even see it anyways. You know, people oftentimes like to use a metaphor of a map. Um but sometimes I, I even with tarot, sometimes people say tarot is like a map, but sometimes that doesn't even feel right because it continues to kind of feel like there's a, a journey or a point A, point B. But if we were to zoom way, way, way up, then maybe we are on a journey. We just can't see it, you know, and 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 then I guess the question is, well, does it even matter if we're aware that we're on a journey or not? But but that's kind of interesting, you know. Yeah, and I like what you said about zooming up because I I think a lot about plants and they have a whole life cycle, right? But when we think about our lives, we often think about like when the flower comes out of the ground to when it blooms as though like that's the whole thing. And so I'm really fascinated by this idea of zooming up, looking at our whole life, you know, and if someone believes in reincarnation or something like that, then you have an even longer story to deal with, like much longer, and a whole other pattern that may not be available from a single lifetime. We spoke about this a little bit earlier, but I wondered if there was anything more that you would want to touch on with this, this idea of the lack of rules, um, you know, that I was saying with the wedding, this lack of rules yeah. that you've written about for, for trans bodies, um, which might feel um, equal parts freeing and disorienting. And I just wonder if there's any anything more that you'd like to add about that. I actually really like that nobody has a sense of what a pregnant trans man is supposed to be doing. And so they don't tell me what to do. Um, my Instagram has somehow gotten wind of the fact that I'm pregnant. So it's like very full of like cisgender women who are like drinking these smoothies and like exercising and wearing organic cotton, like nursing bras and I feel very immune to all of the stuff that they're selling because I'm like, these people don't look like me. Like, I'm just going to do this my own way. Um, and so that feels very good. And the other thing that I've noticed, which I wrote about in that essay, is the way that my body's meaning to other people has changed. So in that essay, I wrote about how before my transition, I walked down New York City streets topless because I could. It's legal here. And like people got really freaked out about it. Um, but then after my transition, I would go to the gym all the time in just my swim trunks. And I haven't had top surgery. So it's like literally the same body. But the context is different. And so understanding the power of that context in terms of how people respond to me has also really 
led me to ask myself, like, what context do I want to give myself? Because clearly this is powerful. I am curious. I mentioned to you that I read the book Amateur um, and the author of that, who was the first uh, trans male to box at Madison Square Garden, talked about after transitioning, sort of realizing the misogyny that was occurring um, and the sort of unfairness of, of that. And, I, and I, I did wonder if you have felt that at all, if you've, if you've, you know, if it's made that more apparent to you in any way, I guess. Yeah, I think that's also in the essay a little bit is that when before my transition, people felt entitled to comment on my body all the time, you know, and sometimes it was positive and sometimes it was negative, like, you know, like cat calls one day and then I say like, you ugly. And when I transitioned, all of that went away. And for this kind of blissful 10-year period, my body has not been subject to public scrutiny because it's like a thin white man's body. Mm -hmm. And now that my body is becoming non-normative again, like that I have essentially like a man with a pot belly, some of that feels like it's coming back. Um, but I don't think I would understand how different those two experiences are had I not had both of them. And so I'm really grateful for that because I don't I don't think I would be able to take in how different they were so I'm going to end this wonderful conversation which thank you so much for this um by asking you a question that I've ended all my interviews this season with which is what are you in search of right now in your life well I'm always in search of the right narrative container um the right way to tell myself a story that gets me to the next day, but is outside of linearity. Yes. Amen. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you, Finn. Tell everybody how they can find you, how they can read your essays. And do you have multiple books out? I know you have at least one. Book. I do have one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So tell people how they can find that and, and follow your work. Absolutely. So um, my book, Even the Cemeteries Have Space Here, which is kind of a prequel to my life now. It's about a trans man devastated by infertility who moves to a new town to start his life over and immediately gets his period back. A collection of essays with my friend Shane the Catskills who contributed artwork that can be found on my website, finnschubert.com. Uh, there's also a link to my Substack newsletter there on my website, or it's just finnschubert.substack.com. And I have a page for my Substack on Facebook called The Menstruant. And I'm also on Instagram at finnschubertwrites. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. This was so much fun. In Search of Tarot is independently written, recorded, edited, and transcribed by Nick Kepley and Angie Miller. You can follow Angie on Instagram at birdgirl underscore, that's B-I-R-D-G-E-R-H-L underscore, and you can follow me, Nick, on Instagram at In Search of Tarot. Have a question or a comment? Email us at isotpod at gmail.com. We also invite you to leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.